Good morning. Happy Easter. <clears throat> you have to excuse me if I have a little bit of a, or maybe a few, nostalgic and sorrowful moments as I'm up here. This is the last sermon that I'll deliver as one of your pastors at Rivertown. But it's a joyful sermon, so we have that to counterbalance. <clears throat> so we're going to take a, a brief hiatus from our Exodus series for this Sunday. And I want to read this quote uh, from Andrew Sandlin that I like to follow. He says, Easter is the church's paramount Christian holy day, but to the primitive church, Every Sunday was Easter. The Bible nowhere explicitly commands the church congregate on the first day of the week, but very early it became the default. Why? Because our Lord's resurrection is the central tenet of our faith, and resurrection day is the perennial cyclical reminder of that all-consuming truth. Now I say that not to bring down Easter Sunday, but really to elevate Every other Sunday, every Sunday is the Lord's day, and every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to the throne of heaven. So as we consider that, I want to look at with you one of the most conspicuous characteristics of the life of our Lord when he was on the earth. And interestingly, it was a characteristic that many recognized, but few understood. In fact, Jesus himself says in the forthcoming passage that no one in all of Israel truly understood and believed this about him. So turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 8. Perhaps you'll find this a bit of an obscure passage for an Easter Sunday, but I think it'll make sense as we begin to unfold it. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, and if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. It says this, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you and we worship you as we look specially and particularly this morning to your resurrected son, the Lord Jesus, who sits on the throne of the universe. We come to worship you. We come to eat the bread of life. You said, Lord Jesus, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we come to receive that bread of your word now. We pray that you would instruct us by your spirit, Lord Jesus, even as you said that he would bring to remembrance all things that you said. We pray that you would do that now, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> the, the operative phrase that I want to focus on in this passage, and I'll really use this, I don't do this often, but I use this passage as a bit of a springboard. We're not going to spend much time here, but I want to grab this phrase that the centurion uses. He says, I too am a man under authority. A man under authority. What does that mean, a man under authority? So the centurion had subordinates. He had soldiers under him. Traditionally, a centurion had a hundred soldiers under his command. And he was under the command, ultimately, of Caesar. And so everything he did, he did in the name of Caesar with all the force and authority of Caesar. And so he understood how authority worked. He had this delegated authority from Caesar, and he commanded the men that were under his charge, and he told them exactly what to do, and they obeyed without hesitation. And it was because he was exercising a delegated authority, not because he was just telling them what to do and they really respected this man. No, he was simply a delegate on behalf of Caesar, giving commands and instructions. And so they obeyed. And what's more and really fascinating about this is that he recognizes that physical proximity has no bearing on the exercise of authority. He would, he would tell his soldiers, go do this, or he would send to his soldiers or whatever. They didn't have to be nearby. Simply the fact that he was operating in the name of Caesar was sufficient for them to obey. And he recognized that Christ could do likewise. He recognized Christ as a man under authority. What does that mean? How is Christ under authority if he's the Lord of all? Well, we learn in Philippians that though he was in the form of God, he counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So for the temporary time that he was on earth, he subjected himself totally and fully to the will and the heart and mind of the Father. So the Father was above him and everything else was subordinate to him. All people and this man, the centurion, recognizes here that even all disease and sickness is subordinate to him. It's fascinating, and it makes this, this recognition and confession from the centurion makes Jesus marvel. So no one in all, all of Israel refused to recognize the reality to which all of Christ's words and actions pointed, that he was the son of the most high God 
and he was sent by him to accomplish his will. But the centurion simply believed what was manifestly obvious. So I want to speak to you concerning three things about Christ's authority. The demonstration of his authority, the derivation of his authority, and the delegation of his authority. So first we'll look at the demonstration of his authority. What does it look like? Examples. Let's look at the way that he talked, the way that he acted. What sort of things did he do and what was the cadence with which he did them? And we have a lot of misperception to combat. Anytime, anytime, especially when we come to the New Testament and we look at the example of Jesus Christ and we read his words and see how he acted, we don't even realize how much we are combating this false perception and image that we've received culturally of the Lord Jesus. Just look at all the pictures. He's got a nice halo. He's all dressed up with his long hair and he's got blush neatly smeared on his cheekbones. But that's not the Christ that we see when we look in the Bible. So we're fighting this feminine perception of Jesus as we come here, especially when we're looking at his authority. We don't realize how much we've been influenced by that, but you begin to realize it as you look in these passages. If you read them enough times and you absorb them and you see the way that he's truly depicted in the scriptures compared to the way that most people conceive of him. So let's start. I've got three text blocks that I want to read and just see, consider, you know, sometimes you read through the scriptures and you can read through the same passage and it's like just turning a diamond a little bit and you look, you're looking at the same diamond but you're looking through a different facet of it. And so as we turn the diamond and look at these passages, consider the authoritative nature of the way that Jesus spoke and acted. We'll look first, read John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, when Jesus cleanses the temple. We read this passage recently, but it's a fascinating demonstration of his authority. Now consider that when he's coming here during the Passover, there are thousands and thousands of people at the temple. This was the central yearly festival, and there were all sorts of authorities, all sorts of guests and visitors, and they had a whole superstructure of everything that they were doing there. And in comes Jesus in verse 12. It says this, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This was after the wedding at Cana. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. You can't really appreciate how momentous this act was unless you look at a picture or, or a, a reenactment of what this would have been like and how disruptive it was. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Turn over to John chapter 4. His dealing with an individual. The woman from Samaria. So he comes to this well, to Jacob's well. Beginning in verse 7 of John chapter 4, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. How is it? The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Who talks like that? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, meaning the Samaritans. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's making declarations factually and decisively about the nature of God. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Look over at John 6, beginning in verse 30, after Jesus feeds the 5,000. He begins speaking to them further as they come and seek after him because of the signs that he did. And ate because it actually says because they ate their fill of the loaves, not because they saw the signs. It says, so he said to them, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, he's speaking concerning the nature of God. People didn't speak this way, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am that bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has, who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give... For the life of the world is my flesh. So he's, he's reorienting even their historical understanding of the monumental event in the wilderness when God gave bread from heaven. He's explaining to them and interpreting to them the things that they thought they knew. It's incredible. Four times in that passage, he says, I will raise him up at the last day. Who can say that? And in fact, Jesus speaks repeatedly of the future as though it's a foregone conclusion. He speaks about the future in the same declarative and decisive way that he talks about the present, that he talks about everything. He talks about everything that way. He says in John chapter 1, <clears throat> to Nathaniel, he says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We already read in chapter 2 where he says something similar. To the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It's just a plain fact. There's no contention about it. I'm not thinking that maybe I'll be raised up or hoping for it. It just is. He said the same thing in the passage we just read, chapter 6. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will raise him up on the last day. Then he says in John chapter 7 to the Jews, as he's speaking at the feast, I will be with you a little longer, then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Listen, I know sometimes this, this, these things become so familiar that we read them and lose the magnitude of what's being said and the majesty of it. But just think about that for a moment. He's telling them what they're going to do and what will happen when they do it. And then he says this in John chapter 8 when he's speaking to the Jews again. And the leaders, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So He declares truth as plain fact. Do this sometime. Read through the words of Christ in the Gospels and count how many times. He prefaces what he says with, I think or I feel. Well, I think that, well, I really feel like God would, I don't think he does it once. But how often do we speak that way? Even when we're speaking about things that we should be absolutely certain of because they're written in the book. But he never did that. He always spoke declaratively, plain facts. And so strange and unique was this way of speaking that after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It says after he finished speaking in the temple in John chapter 7, and the Pharisees had sent officers to take him, that the Pharisees came to the chief priests, I mean the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That was why they didn't bring him. They were so astonished at the way he was speaking that they refused to take him and bring him to the Pharisees. They recognized something tremendously different about his speech that caused them to hesitate and disregard that command. So those are just a few examples of the demonstration of his authority. You can look I mean, the New Testament Gospels are replete with examples of this. Virtually every time he opened his mouth, you see this. It's incredible. So the demonstration of his authority, what does it look like? Now I want to consider the derivation of his authority. Where does it come from? You know I had to alliterate these. The, I, I had to, they were, and the words were there. It was perfect. Where does it come from? Where does his authority, how can, how can he talk like this? 
Nobody talks like this. How can he talk like this? Three things. He came in the name of the Father. He came speaking the words of the Father. And he came doing the works of the Father. He came in the name of the Father. On the Father's behalf. At the Father's behest. It says in John 5.34, when he's speaking to the Jews, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. In John 10, when he's speaking to them again, he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. John 17, in the high priestly prayer, two times, he says, first, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's praying this to the Father. And again, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he came in the Father's name. You know, we pray, I don't know if you think about this often, but frequently when we pray and we conclude the prayer with in Jesus name in Jesus name I pray but what does that really mean it means that we're everything we're saying we're saying in his name we're saying it with his authority we're saying it under him under the banner of Jesus Christ and so that that's what this means too Jesus came under the banner and with the authority of the father So he came in the name of the Father. He came speaking the words of the Father, declaring the Father's, the fullness of the Father's heart and his mind. It says in John 7, when he's at the feast again, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is of God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. And again in John 8, when he's talking to the Jews, they said, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I do always those things which please him. And then he says to his disciples in John 14, Philip comes to him and says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long a time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And that brings us to the third point, that he came doing the works of God. 
He came in the, na- in the name of the Father. He came speaking the words of the Father, and he came doing the works of the Father. The Father gave him specific things to do and to accomplish during his time on earth, even in a similar fashion as it says of us in Ephesians 2, that he's prepared good works for us to walk in. He prepared good works for his son to walk in during his time on earth. It says in John chapter 4, after he met the woman at the well and the disciples come back and find him talking to her, they urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 5, when he's talking to the Jews and reproving them, it says they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He had healed the impotent man earlier in that chapter on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 9, before he heals the blind man, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night's coming when no man can work. And then in John 10, to the Jews again, I've shown you many good works from my father. For which of those are you going to stone me? Now contrast this with the Pharisees and the scribes. They were weak and paltry by comparison, even when they presumed a kind of an air of authority because they did it in their own name, under their own authority. There was a complete blockage between the father and them because they didn't know him and they had open hostility towards them, though they would say otherwise. And you really get the sense that the people had this that fear and reverence for them, but, but it was a contemptual kind of fear, not a respectful kind of fear. Not that they held them in high regard and feared them, but that they despised them because of their hypocrisy and because they were doing all these things in their name. And that's why it says in Matthew 7 that Jesus spoke with authority not as the scribes. Have you ever been taught or instructed by someone who lacked the requisite weight or wisdom or character? It's very difficult to listen. It's very difficult to hear. Even if they're saying the right things and saying them in the right way, it's difficult to receive because the teaching lacks substance and import. The man doesn't match the message. There's no unseen authority and oomph behind it. 
That was how it was with the Pharisees. And that's how it is for anyone who does anything disconnected and cut off from the Lord of all. Or compare Moses. It is actually a lot of similarities between if it, what we've been studying in the way that the Lord commissioned Moses and delegated authority to him and the life of Christ. The intention was for Moses to go in God's authority in the exact same way that we see Jesus going about. Maybe not exact, similar. He was to go in God's name. It says three times in Exodus 3 that we studied a few weeks ago. God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Or again, he says, say to the people of Israel, the Lord has sent me to you. And again, go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord has appeared to me. So Moses was supposed to be going in God's name. It's a whole passage where he, he talks about his name and explains his name to Moses and then says, now you're to go in my name to the people. And they're going to they're gonna listen to you because you're going in my name. And he was supposed to speak God's words. God gave him the exact things to say. And he was to perform God's works, the signs that the Lord gave him. So it's the, sa- it's the same thing. He's supposed to go in God's name to speak God's words and to do God's works. But he's just obje- it's just objection. It's just objection after objection. It's fascinating to read, just read that passage and soak in it for a minute and then go and read the way that, that Jesus talked the way that Moses talked and interacted with the Lord and other people, and then the way that that Jesus did. Now, to Moses' credit, he does obey. He does do it. He does do what the Lord said, after much protest, I might add, but he does do it. But it doesn't seem like he really is walking fully in it. He's not really embracing and absorbing the magnitude of the task and the privilege that he's been given. He was told by the Lord of all who made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go in his name and speak these words and do these signs and he would be the agent through which God would deliver his people from 400 years of slavery and he's like, I don't know, I don't think they're gonna listen to me. But he could have, but he could have, he could have owned it and walked in it and, and really believed it and laid hold of it. But that's what Jesus did. And sacrifice and burnt offering you haven't desired, but a body you've prepared me. I delight, O oh God, to do your will. Perfect obedience and total confidence as he's walking about on the earth to do the Father's will. Jesus is afraid of no one. He seeks praise from no one. And he's singularly concerned with fulfilling the will of his Father which he overwhelmingly accomplishes, of course. But there's just this, if you meditate on it long enough, you, you begin to understand why so many people were drawn to the gracious words, even though he spoke so declaratively and so plainly with such force and authority, it says they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth because he was speaking on behalf of the Father, not coming in his own authority. So, 
we get lastly to the delegation of his authority. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Who is it given to? Christ is no longer here bodily on the earth. What happened to the authority? Is it just, it's just gone now and it's just gone up to heaven and someday he'll come back and reestablish all the authority. That's not the picture that we get. After the resurrection in John 20, Jesus appears to the disciples and says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Even so I'm sending you. What does that mean? What does that mean? We get some further clarification in Matthew's gospel at the Great Commission when Jesus comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Not that I've asked you to do, that I've requested that you please do. He has commanded us to do things, and he's entrusted us with the requisite authority to command others to do the same. Not because we think that it's the right thing to do. Not because we want other people to do them. Not because people should obey what we say. But because we're agents, and we're declaring something that was given to us. So he received ultimate authority following the resurrection and he confers that authority to his own people. Have you ever thought, really thought about this, that you could, you could, if you're in Christ, walk about with the same kind of cadence and confidence that Jesus himself walked around with? You don't care what anybody thinks. You're not trying to please anybody except the Lord. And he's the, it's, it's the, the locus around which Christ's entire earthly life revolved. The will of God, walking in the authority of God. And so it should be with us. With everything that we do, the locus should be the will of God and walking in the power and authority of the resurrected Lord that he's blood-bought and given freely to us. You can walk around like that. You belong here. I want to read to you how Peter puts it in Acts 2, the sermon at Pentecost. It says, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this is a quote from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore was my heart glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quote from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the flow of authority is the Father raised the Son from the dead, exalted him at his right hand. The Spirit's poured out in Jesus' name on his people, and his people are sent to press his authoritative claim into every corner of earthly life for all men. You get an example of this in Acts 17 when they're talking to Gentiles who don't know anything about God. They're worshiping some unknown God. And they say to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Okay, so just so you know, you're worshiping an unknown God, and God winked at this for a time, but now it's time for everyone everywhere to come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the standard by which every man will be judged at the resurrection. So we go in his name, speaking his words and doing his works. As we close, I want to give you as fuel for the fire a little bit of a picture of the exalted king, the Lord Jesus. You know, we, we looked at his earthly life, how he conducted his earthly life which is good and helpful because he left us an example that we should walk in his steps. But it's also strengthening and helpful to see him high and exalted and lifted up as he's depicted in the scriptures. This is especially fascinating to do if you traverse back through the Psalms and th- consider that every time it talks about the Lord the Lord reigning, the Lord ruling, the Lord sitting enthroned above the circle of the earth, the Lord being exalted, everything. Then think about the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everyone, everyone, everywhere, and everything. Psalm 97 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. 
Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the habitation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. And I'll read a block from actually the entirety of the chapter in Revelation chapter 4. One of the greatest, chapter 4 and 5, some of the greatest chapters in all the Bible because of the picture that you get. It says in verse one, after this, this is John writing in his vision, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven. Forty-seven times in the book of Revelation that word is used. The throne, the throne, the throne, the throne. The thrust of the book is worship the lamb on the throne. Those are the most used words. So he sees the throne in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were tw- <coughs> around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the one who sends us out in his name to speak his words and to do his works. This privilege have all his godly ones. We have more authority delegated to us than we could possibly imagine. 
You can't even conceive of it because we see through a glass darkly. All the mighty force of heaven from the one who sits on the throne stands behind us as we go about our God-given duties. And when we explicitly refuse or unwittingly fail to walk in that authority, it's nothing more than bald unbelief. It's just unbelief. There's nothing humble about being like Moses when the Lord commissions you in this way and then you say, oh, I I mean, they won't listen to me. But we do this all the time. Who Who am I that I should go, Lord? That's not the point. The point isn't who are you. The point is in whose name are you going? On whose authority are you going? Whose words are you going to speak and works are you going to do? That's what matters. It's, not, it's a false humility when the Lord says, here, I've given you this, all of this privilege and this power and this authority to go, and I've commanded you to go, and then you say, well, I can't, I mean, I don't want to offend people. I mean, they might not listen to me, or they might think I'm stupid, or what if I don't know what to say? All of that completely misses the point and becomes like the unbelieving Jews who recognized some authority in Jesus, but they didn't know where it came from or why he had it, and they despised it. But the simplicity of faith like the centurion says, oh, definitely, under authority. I understand. Every corner of the world belongs to Jesus Christ, and it's our job to make that plainly known. And you'll find, if you haven't already, I'm sure you have, it's patently obvious that this is the real point of contention today. Not, not did Jesus come and die for your sins, not the explicit specifics of the gospel. That's not what people mostly will fight you on. People will fight you on Christ's authoritative claim over the world and over their lives. It goes back further than the cross. Oh, great! that's great that Jesus died for me. I mean, it's great that he offers that to me. I mean, he's not going to tell me what to do. Authority in general is despised, but especially the authority of Christ over all men. But we must gladly and gladly, not frustratedly, not bitterly, not timidly, gladly and confidently insist upon his authority at every turn, just like Jesus did. It's never ruffled feathers. His anger at the overturning of the tables in the temple was calculated, purposeful, not reactionary. And so we should be the same way. Maybe some of you say, oh, I agree with all that, but it's a totally different thing to live it, to walk in it. We can all say in in here, oh, that's, and talk about it and agree with it and then go out and then completely leave it right here. But he has a claim on every single person in Brattleboro every single person in the world. He has a claim on every place. Your place of work, wherever you go, shopping, is his. He has a claim there. It is not permissible for people to flagrantly deny him and 
thumb the nose at him as they break his law without reservation. And he's given us the privilege of pressing on that, pressing on that, and saying, like John did, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to do this. That's not permissible. Don't you know that the king is coming back? This world belongs to the king. And you may not like him or submit to him, but you should because he's coming back and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You should do it now, willingly, before you're made to do so forcefully. We press that, press that on people. And you learn to press it. We learn to press this on people, again, not just because we've got a chip on our shoulder. We've been commissioned by the king of the universe to do this and to do it over and over to build a lifetime of doing this over the course of many years to teach and to train our children to do this. This is how the kingdom of God is extended and grown and built as we do this. We walk in obedience to his commands. We speak his words and do his works and we go in his name and he through us establishes his kingdom and his authority here on the earth and you have a specific role to play in that. The place where God has put you, the circumstances that he surrounded you with. Nobody else is in those same circumstances. Nobody else has the same places that they go or people that they talk to. You have a unique opportunity to extend the rule and the reign of the king of the universe exactly where he's put you. So let's not be like Moses with all his objections, but be like our Lord himself, recognizing and laying hold of the authority that we've been given as we impress upon all men at all times the reality of him who sits enthroned between the cherubim and who will soon return to fully establish his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we truly have touched just the hem of your garments and seen through a dark glass these marvelous realities. We're not even fit to take them upon our lips. But by the blood of Christ, you've fitted us. You've forgiven us and you've fitted us and you've equipped us to walk in these things. We rejoice and magnify your holy name for the privilege that you've given to us. What a wonderful and a marvelous thing that wretched sinners like us should be forgiven and should be commissioned into your service to go forth in your name, to take your words on our lips and to do the works that you have prepared for us to walk in. I pray for all of us, for all of these precious people, every soul in this room, that everyone would bow the knee to Christ and that everyone would walk in the power and the privilege of going about in your name, fulfilling your commandments, teaching men to obey everything that you've commanded and to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bless every person and keep them. Make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them and lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen.